In order to understand American history, it's first important to understand British history. For the first 170 years of English America's existence, this isn't really surprising. What may be more surprising is how much English history from the Tudor and Stuart eras has reverberated, even after America became an independent country, and how much it's shaped American identity and molded the American experience. Because of that, I'm starting the American History Podcast with an overview of the century leading up to the founding of Jamestown. A prologue, if you will. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. This was the era that shaped British aspirations in the New World. It was also the era which created the kinds of social and political tensions which drove people to America. In America, people would begin to build societies shaped by reactions to the politics of the time. And if you ever wondered why Massachusetts and Mississippi are such wildly different places, the answer starts here. With that in mind, we'll start the story of America in 1509. In June, a young king had just been crowned. He was deeply Catholic and known for being intensely devoted to his wife, even jousting under the name Sir Loyal Heart. He was the first king in over 200 bloody years to inherit the throne without contest, and under his reign, the Renaissance finally began to emerge in England. Unless you believe the Blackadder version of history, his father had won the crown when he killed Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. Much like his father, he emphasized his humble British roots to contrast himself from the aristocratic French Plantagenets. Catholic, British, brave, cultured, sophisticated, intellectual. He distrusted the hereditary nobility and chose men of low social origins as his advisors. Thomas Wolseley, for example, was the son of a butcher who had gotten in trouble for selling meat that was considered unfit for human consumption, even by 16th century standards. Others were low-level attorneys and lecturers, and eight years after this king rose to prominence, another devout Catholic rose to prominence in Germany. When Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses, he intended to participate in a century-old anti-clerical movement. He didn't intend to create a whole new sect of Christianity, and he didn't want that. In fact, at this point in time, there was very little Protestantism in the way that we think of it. The battle was between the Reformation and the Anti-Reformation for the heart and soul of the Catholic Church. If you hadn't guessed by now, Our young king is Henry VIII, and he thought that Martin Luther had gone much too far. He wrote several well-regarded treatises and even grew a very unfashionable beard in solidarity with the Pope. He attacked Luther and he hated Protestants, and he was so dedicated to Catholicism that the Pope gave him the title of Defender of the Faith. All the more surprising when 24 years into his reign, Henry VIII launched England's Protestant Reformation. Much like Luther, he didn't want to create a new church, but unlike Luther, he'd been pushed there by pragmatic necessity. Like I said, Henry was the first king in over two centuries to inherit the throne without contest. That time had included the bloody and traumatic Wars of the Roses, which had also held England back 
technologically, culturally, and economically. If Henry couldn't produce an heir, the conflict could reemerge. Producing an heir was the single most important thing that he could do during his reign. If he succeeded, he could solidify peace for England. If he failed, war could reemerge and destroy any other progress that he had managed to make. After 24 years with Catherine of Aragon, all that Henry had was one daughter. There was no real precedent of women rulers in Europe at the time, so this wasn't an heir who could necessarily keep the peace. 24 years was a pretty good indication that Catherine wasn't going to be producing an heir ever. And so Henry's search for an heir has become the defining characteristic of his reign, but it's easy to forget what a desperate situation he was in. If you need an heir to protect your country against war, and you will not have one with your current wife, there's not much you can do. So he asked the Pope for a divorce. Enter obstacle number two, because the Pope's hands were also bound by politics. Henry could make the most biblical of arguments, he could be the most dedicated of allies, he could be the staunchest of Catholics, but he would never be more important to Rome than his wife was. Catherine of Aragon was a Spanish princess, and, he, and she was the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor. Spain and the Holy Roman Empire were far more powerful allies than Henry's backward island nation. The Pope couldn't afford to push them away with the pro-Reformation wave sweeping Europe. Allowing Henry to dubiously divorce their family member and essentially destroy her future happiness and well-being would do a pretty good job of that. So, sorry Henry, you're on your own. Fortunately for Henry, he had the anti-clerical tradition to build on. Even more helpful, the Pope had actually given Henry's Archbishop, Wolseley, an unprecedented amount of power thanks to his support during the critical years of the Reformation. Henry didn't have to create his own church, he just had to make that transfer of power permanent and declare himself the head of the English Catholic Church, changing the clergy structure but not the doctrines of Catholicism. He still decried Luther as a heretic for criticizing doctrinal matters, and he still claimed to be a strong Catholic. He had just changed the clergy structure. It was a clever solution and a simple one, but it wasn't a popular one in Rome, and Henry was excommunicated. Of course, excommunication also meant that every Catholic subject Henry had was absolved from submitting to him. It also meant that every clergyman in England, most of them of noble birth, was a potential enemy, even more so than before. So things were getting out of hand. Henry hated the Reformation, but on the other hand, now he was not only heirless, but officially deemed a heretic by the Vatican. He was already on bad terms with England's nobility, and new developments didn't particularly help with foreign relations either. Parliament emerged as Henry's main ally. He turned to the House of Commons and asked them to pass some reforms, some of which were necessary to maintain the peace and others which were simply vindictive. Together, they took away taxes funding the clergy, they took away the ability of the clergy to impose taxes, he cut the annates, which was the first year's income of any bishop, which usually went to Rome, and he essentially cut all major sources of fundraising for the church. The House of Commons was very happy to go along with this. It hit the church financially, and Henry was thrilled. His bishops 
warned him that if he continued, his religious revolution would lead to a social revolution like the kind in the Czech Hussite revolt. But Henry continued to push forward. He was pushing the clergy to submit to his supremacy, and he began executing the ones who wouldn't go along with the changes. Most famously, this included Sir Thomas More. He was carefully and methodically severing any tie that Rome could use to exert influence in England. The next step was dissolving the monasteries. This had a double benefit. First, he had just run out of his inherited money, and the monasteries were the wealthiest institutions in England and Wales and owned a third of the land. Second, they were likely to be centers of opposition to him. So over the course of four years, he closed 800 of 850 religious houses and confiscated their money, land, and treasures. 10,000 monks were displaced. Some were happy about this, some opposed it and were killed, some went on to marry former nuns and become respectable parish clergy. He gave the less valuable items to the local populations, and he ended up getting about £100,000 per year from the dissolution and £1.5 million from the sale and lease of all the property, which was actually probably significantly less than they were worth. Up until this point, everything Henry had done was pretty subtle and political. It wasn't the kind of thing that the average person followed or cared about. The dissolution of the monasteries, however, was an extraordinary social upheaval. For the poor, it meant the removal of their main safety net, as well as a likely change in the ownership of the land that they leased. Poor, weak, and sick people were suddenly left on their own with no one to turn to. In addition, new landowners were often much harsher than the old ones had been. The people who bought the land were mostly of the landed and mercantile classes. These people began to dominate England economically, and the fact that they were profiting off the land that had been taken from the Catholic Church meant that it was very much in their financial best interest to support the Reformation and remain loyal to the Tudors. They also knew that they could make much more money on wool than on crops because of England's growing cloth industry. Sheep were both more valuable than crops and required fewer people to maintain them. So the new landowners raised rents, ended leases, forced peasants off the land, and profited handsomely. The nobility, on the other hand, had refused to make the kind of cutthroat economic decisions that the landed and mercantile classes had, and that meant that they began to fall behind economically. They didn't raise their rents or evict people or end leases the majority of the time. The leading families of England remained much more loyal to the Catholic Church than the other classes had, and suddenly they found a class ready to compete with them for social control. Henry was also killing numbers in huge numbers at this point, so they were very much declining in authority. In the north, both the peasants and the nobility were so upset by Henry's actions that 22,000 people in Lincolnshire occupied the local cathedral, and even more famously, 9,000 people gathered in Yorkshire to drive out Henry's clergy and reinstall the Catholic priests. After their movement had been dispersed, another rebellion led to nearly 300 executions. Neither Henry nor his Reformation-minded chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, were very popular, 
and a total of 40,000 people out of England's population of 2.25 million rose against their policies in 1536. Popular or not, though, and whether or not Henry called himself a Protestant, there was no turning back. Even if he had wanted to, he couldn't produce a Catholic heir because he'd have a hard time convincing a Catholic to marry him. His ministers were Protestant and encouraged the English people to start adopting more Protestant views. And reading the Bible was a big example of this. Catholics had been discouraged from reading the Bible because people needed educated clergy to teach them and help them interpret what was in the Bible instead of drawing their own conclusions about what it said. This sounds foreign to us today, but in the first few months of this podcast, we'll actually see that the ability to read the Bible did lead to some pretty crazy views popping up. Under Cromwell and the Protestants, though, Tyndall and Cloverdale started translating the Bible into English. Henry had Tyndall executed, but Cromwell continued to order the Paternoster and the Commandments to be taught in English. Cromwell himself was executed in 1540, and overall, Henry executed about equal numbers of Catholics and Protestants, Catholics for treason and Protestants for heresy. He also lost the money that he had gotten from dissolving the monasteries in a war with Scotland and France. Victory ended up costing much more than defeat would have, and the forts that he won ended up costing England a lot to maintain and defend. Interestingly, this is also the last official crusade because of France's alliance with Turkey. The Scottish king was killed and his one-year-old daughter was crowned. When Henry died, he left England to his heir, his son, the child for whom he had sacrificed so much, Edward. Edward was young, sickly, and a dedicated Protestant, and he made the two goals of his reign the expansion of Protestantism and keeping his sister Mary off the throne. To that end, he brought in scholars from Germany, Switzerland, and Poland to Oxford and Cambridge to educate the clergy in the Reformed doctrines. Under his reign, the English Book of Common Prayer was published, and the reading of the English Bible was encouraged. The same economic trends that started under Henry continued under Edward. The enclosures became more widespread as landlords moved toward the production of wool and the removal of village communal strips. They infringed on the rights of the peasants, and in some counties, a third of the arable land was turned over to grass for sheep. With nowhere to turn, the peasants experienced widespread unemployment, and England entered one of the worst economic crises in its history. Edward's advisors and England's preachers sympathized with the peasantry. Preachers denounced the lack of compassion in society and sermons that are still remembered today. Edward's advisors appointed commissions to inquire into the enclosures, and this encouraged the oppressed to take matters into their own hands. Two rebellions broke out, both with both religious and economic themes, and this illustrates just how closely religion and politics were intertwined at the time. Catholic peasants in the southwest re rebelled against the prayer book, and in the eastern counties, peasants rebelled against their landlords. At this point in history, the Protestant Reformation was known more for its economic impacts than any real religious reform. By 1549, things were so bad that nobles feared a peasants' war similar to the one in Germany in 1524. 
Edward was dying, and in a last-ditch effort to keep his sisters off the throne, he appointed his 19-year-old cousin, Lady Jane Grey, as his successor. After Edward died, it took Mary Tudor about two weeks to argue that the throne was rightfully hers, and when she was coronated, she executed Jane and her husband. Mary also wanted to use her reign to guide the religion of England, but unlike Edward, she was Catholic. Very very Catholic. <sighs> she intended to restore the Roman communion and stamp out the Reformation entirely. Ironically, this is what ended up sealing the conversion of England to the Reformed faith. She repealed the Reformed religious legislation and she married the Spanish king in an effort to unite England with Spain and the Habsburg Empire. This went against the will of the House of Commons, who wanted her to marry the English Earl of Devon. This prompted some discontent and protests against Mary, but nothing too serious. The more serious problem was the fact that she couldn't restore the church lands. The church simply could not return to the level of prominence that it had had before Henry dissolved the monasteries. When Mary was dragged into war with France, she lost the last English possession on the continent, Calais, which was a national symbol, and the loss of which was a national disgrace. The war also saw the re-emergence of the Franco-Scottish alliance. In addition to all of this, Mary also found herself unable to have kids, which not only left England without a Catholic heir, but put her marriage on edge. It was a very unlucky reign. But Mary is known mostly for her persecution of Protestants. To put things in perspective, she only killed 684 people during her reign, and not all for religious reasons. In comparison, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre had killed between five and 30,000 people in just a few weeks, and her own father had killed nearly 10,000 people. Of course, we remember her as Bloody Mary, and this is in part because when she killed people, she executed them very publicly as a way to intimidate others who might also want to oppose Catholicism. It's also because by the time Mary came around to oppose the Reformation, it had already taken root in England. It already had its staunch advocates, and they were there to turn her intimidation against her in the public opinion. Fox's Book of Martyrs joined the ranks of the English Bible and the Book of Prayer as one of England's key religious texts. The theme was Protestant martyrs killed for their faith, and it turned public opinion very effectively. People who had been apathetic about religious affairs and the nuances of proper church governance were suddenly galvanized, and the people who associated the Reformation with economic oppression now associated Catholicism with an even more brutal form of oppression. This pushed England irreversibly toward Protestantism, and it also pushed already dedicated Protestants to Geneva and the German Rhineland, where they studied with Calvin and became even more extreme. When they returned to England after Mary's death, they would be much stronger force with much more extreme ideas than they were when they left. Not only was England now Protestant, but it had a hardcore group of Calvinist leaders ready to pull the country even further toward the Reformation. Five years after she took the throne, Mary died and she left her younger sister in power. That sister was Elizabeth, and it was under Elizabeth that all the social, political, and religious upheaval that emerged under Henry and increased under Edward and Mary started to even out. 
As we'll see, though, the newfound stability wasn't perfect. Divisions had been introduced into English culture that would never fully be repaired, and which would drive people to the new world in droves. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd appreciate if you'd rate and subscribe to the show. And you can also visit my website at AmericanHistoryPodcast.net or connect with me on social media. 